0: chapter three part one of ecce homo by friedrich nietzsche translated by antony m ludovici why i write such excellent books part one one i am one thing my creations are another here before i speak of the books themselves i shall touch upon the question of the understanding and misunderstanding with which they have met. I shall proceed to do this in as perfunctory a manner as the occasion demands, for the time has by no means come for this question. My time has not yet come either. Some men are born posthumously. One day Institutions will be needed in which men will live and teach, as I understand living and teaching, may be, also, that by that time chairs will be founded and endowed for the interpretation of Zarathustra. But I should regard it as a complete contradiction of myself if I expected to find ears and eyes for my truths today the fact that no one listens to me that no one knows how to receive at my hands today is not only comprehensible it seems to me quite the proper thing i do not wish to be mistaken for another and to this end i must not mistake myself to repeat what i have already said i can point to but few instances of ill will in my life and as for literary ill-will, I could scarcely mention a single example of it. On the other hand, I have met with far too much pure foolery. It seems to me that to take up one of my books is one of the rarest honours that a man can pay himself, even supposing that he put his shoes off from his feet beforehand, not to mention boots. When on one occasion Dr. Heinrich von Stein honestly complained that he could not understand a word of my Zarathustra, I said to him that this was just as it should be. To have understood six sentences in that book, that is to say, to have lived them, raises a man to a higher level among mortals than modern man can attain. With this feeling of distance, how could I even wish to be read by the moderns whom I know? My triumph is just the opposite of what Schopenhauer's was. I say, non legur, non legar. Not that I should like to underestimate the pleasure I have derived from the innocence with which my works have been frequently contradicted. As late as last summer, at a time when I was attempting, perhaps by means of my weighty, all-too-weighty literature, to throw the rest of literature off its balance, a certain professor of Berlin University kindly gave me to understand that I ought really to make use of a different form. No one could read such stuff as I wrote." Finally, it was not Germany, but Switzerland that presented me with the two most extreme cases an essay on Beyond Good and Evil by Dr. Fau Wittmann in the paper called The Bunt under the heading Nietzsche's Dangerous Book and a general account of all my works from the pen of Herr Karl Spitler also in the Bunt constitute a maximum in my life. I shall not say of what. The latter treated my Zarathustra, for instance, as advanced exercises in style, and expressed the wish that later on I might try and attend to the question of substance as well. Dr. Wildman assured me of this respect for the courage I showed in endeavouring to abolish all decent feeling thanks to a little trick of destiny every sentence in these criticisms seemed with a consistency that i could but admire to be an inverted truth in fact it was most remarkable that all one had to do was to transvalue all values in order to hit the nail on the head with regard to me instead of striking my head with the nail. I am more particularly anxious, therefore, to discover an explanation. After all, no one can draw more out of things, books included, than he already knows. A man has no ears, for that to which experience has given him no access... To take an extreme case, suppose a book contains simply incidents which lie quite outside the range of general, or even rare, experience. Suppose it to be the first language to express a whole series of experiences. In this case, nothing it contains will really be heard at all, and, thanks to an acoustic delusion, people will believe that where nothing is heard there is nothing to hear this at least has been my usual experience and proves if you will the originality of my experience he who thought he had understood something in my work had as a rule adjusted something in it to his own image not infrequently the very opposite of myself and idealist for instance he who understood nothing in my work would deny that i was worth considering at all the word superman which designates a type of man that would be one of nature's rarest and luckiest strokes as opposed to modern men to good men to christians and other nihilists a word which in the mouth of Zarathustra, the annihilator of morality, acquires a very profound meaning, is understood almost everywhere, and with perfect innocence, in light of those values to which a flat contradiction was made manifest in the figure of Zarathustra, that is to say, as an ideal type, a higher kind of man, half saint, and half genius. Other learned cattle have suspected me of Darwinism on account of this word. Even the hero-cult of that great unconscious and involuntary swindler, Carlyle, a cult which I repudiate with such roguish malice, was recognised in my doctrine. Once When I whispered to a man that he would do better to seek for the superman in a Caesar Borgia than in a Parsifal, he could not believe his ears. The fact that I have been quite free from curiosity in regard to criticism of my books, more particularly when they appear in newspapers, will have to be forgiven me. My friends and my publishers know this, and never speak to me of such things. In one particular case, I once saw all the sins that had been committed against a single book. It was beyond good and evil. I could tell you a nice story about it. Is it possible that in the National Zeitung, a Prussian paper, this comment is for the sake of my foreign readers? for my own part i beg to state i read only *Le Journal des débats really and seriously regarded the book as a sign of the times or a genuine and typical example of tory philosophy for which the kreuzzeitung had not sufficient courage translator's footnote jünker philosophy. the landed proprietors constitute a dominating class in Prussia. And it is from this class that all officers and higher officials are drawn. The Zeitung is an organ of the Junker party. End translator's note. 2. This was said for the benefit of Germans. For everywhere else I have my readers, all of them exceptionally intelligent men, characters that have won their spurs and that have been reared in high offices and superior duties. I have even real geniuses among my readers. In Vienna, in St. Petersburg, in Stockholm, in Copenhagen, in Paris, and New York, I have been discovered everywhere. I have not yet been discovered in Europe's flatland, Germany and, to make a confession, I rejoice much more heartily over those who do not read me, over those who have neither heard of my name nor of the word philosophy. But whithersoever I go, here in Turin, for instance, every face brightens and softens at the sight of me. A thing that has flattered me more than anything else hitherto is the fact that old market women cannot rest until they have picked out the sweetest of their grapes for me. To this extent must a man be a philosopher. It is not in vain that the Poles are considered as the French among the Slavs. A charming Russian lady will not be mistaken for a single moment concerning my origin. I am not successful at being pompous. The most I can do is to appear embarrassed. I can think in German, I can feel in German, I can do most things, but this is beyond my powers. My old master ritschl went so far as to declare that I planned even my philosophical treatises, after the manner of a Parisian novelist. <laughs> that I made them absurdly thrilling. In Paris itself, people are surprised at tute mes audaces et finesse. The words are Monsieur Taine's. I fear that even in the highest forms of the diathram, that salt will be found pervading my work which never becomes insipid, which never becomes German, and that is wit. I can do naught else. God help me. Amen. We all know, some of us even from experience, what a long ears is. Well then, I venture to assert that I have the smallest ears that have ever been seen. This fact is not without interest to women. It seems to me they feel that I understand them better. I am essentially the anti-ass, and on this account alone, a monster in the world's history. In Greek, and not only in Greek, I am the Antichrist. 3. I am to a great extent aware of my privileges as a writer. In one or two cases, it has even been brought home to me how very much the habitual reading of my works spoils a man's taste. Other books simply cannot be endured after mine, and least of all philosophical ones. It is an incomparable distinction to cross the threshold of this noble and subtle world. In order to do so, one must certainly not be a German. It is, in short, a distinction which one must have deserved. He, however, who is related to me through loftiness of will, experiences genuine raptures of understanding in my books, For I swoop down from heights into which no bird has ever soared, I know abysses into which no foot has ever slipped. People have told me that it is impossible to lay down a book of mine, that I disturb even the night's rest. There is no prouder, or at the same time more subtle kind of books. They sometimes attain to the highest pinnacle of earthly endeavour, cynicism. To capture their thoughts, a man must have the tenderest fingers, as well as the most intrepid fists. Any kind of spiritual decrepitude utterly excludes all intercourse with them, even any kind of dyspepsia. A man must have no nerves, but he must have a cheerful belly. Not only the poverty of a man's soul and its stuffy air excludes all intercourse with them. But also, and to a much greater degree, cowardice, uncleanliness, and secret intestinal revengefulness. A word from my lips suffices to make the colour of all evil instincts rush into a face. Among my acquaintances I have had a number of experimental subjects, in whom I see depicted all the different, and instructively different, reactions which follow upon a perusal of my works. Those who will have nothing to do with the contents of my books, as for instance my so-called friends, assume an impersonal tone concerning them. They wish me luck, and congratulate me for having produced another work, THEY ALSO DECLARE THAT MY WRITINGS SHOW PROGRESS, BECAUSE THEY EXHALE A MORE CHEERFUL SPIRIT. THE THOROUGHLY VICIOUS PEOPLE, THE BEAUTIFUL SOULS, THE FALSE FROM TOP TO TOE, DO NOT KNOW IN THE LEAST WHAT TO DO WITH MY BOOKS. CONSEQUENTLY, WITH THE BEAUTIFUL CONSISTENCY OF ALL BEAUTIFUL SOULS, THEY REGARD MY WORKS AS BENEATH THEM. THE CATTLE AMONG MY acquaintances the mere Germans, leave me to understand, if you please, that they are not always of my opinion, though here and there they agree with me. I have heard this even said about Zarathustra. Feminism, whether in mankind or in man, is likewise a barrier to my writings. With it, no one could ever enter into this labyrinth of fearless knowledge to this end a man must never have spared himself he must have been hard in his habits in order to be good-humoured and merry among a host of inexorable truths when i try to picture the character of a perfect reader i always imagine a monster of courage and curiosity as well as of suppleness cunning and prudence in short a born adventurer and explorer. After all, I could not describe better than Zarathustra has done, unto whom I really address myself, unto whom alone would he reveal his riddle? Unto you, daring explorers and experimenters, and unto all who have ever embarked beneath cunning sails upon terrible seas, unto you, who revel in riddles and in twilight, whose souls are lured by flutes into every treacherous abyss. For ye care not to grope your way along a thread with craven fingers, and where you are able to guess, there you hate to argue. 4. I will now pass just one or two general remarks about my art of style, to communicate a state an inattention of pathos by means of signs, including the tempo of these signs, that is the meaning of every style, and in view of the fact that the multiplicity of inner states in me is enormous, I am capable of many kinds of style in short the most multifarious art of style that any man has ever had at his disposal. Any style is good, which genuinely communicates an inner condition, which does not blunder over the signs, over the tempo of the signs, or over moods. All the laws of phrasing are the outcome of representing moods artistically. Good style in itself is a piece of sheer foolery, mere idealism, like beauty in itself, for instance, or goodness in itself, or the thing in itself. All this takes for granted, of course, that there exists ears that can hear, and such men as are capable and worthy of a like pathos. That those are not wanting unto whom one may communicate oneself. Meanwhile, my Zarathustra, for instance, is still in quest of such people alas, he will have to seek a long while yet. A man must be worthy of listening to him, and until that time there will be no one who will understand the art that has been squandered in this book no one has ever existed who has had more novel, more strange, and purposely created art forms to fling to the winds. The fact that such things were possible in the German language still awaited proof. Formerly, I myself would have denied most emphatically that it was possible. Before my time, people did not know what could be done with the German language? What could be done with language in general? The art of grand rhythm, of grand style in periods, for expressing the tremendous fluctuations of the sublime and superhuman passion, was first discovered by me with the diathram entitled The Seven Seals, which constitute the last discourse of the third part of Zarathustra, I soared miles above all, that which heretofore has been called poetry. 5. The fact that the voice which speaks in my works is that of a psychologist who has not his peer, is perhaps the first conclusion at which a good reader will arrive, a reader such as I deserve, and one who reads me, just as the old philologists used to read their Horace. Those propositions, about which all the world is fundamentally agreed, not to speak of fashionable philosophy, of moralists, and other empty-headed and cabbage-brained peoples, are to me but ingenuous blunders. For instance, the belief that altruistic and egotistic are opposites, while all the time the ego itself is merely a supreme swindle, an ideal. There are no such things as egotistical or altruistic actions. Both concepts are psychological nonsense. Of the proposition that man pursues happiness, or the proposition that happiness is the reward of virtue, or the proposition that pleasure and pain are opposites morality the Circe of mankind has falsified everything psychological root and branch it has bemoralized everything even to the terribly nonsensical point of calling love unselfish a man must first be firmly poised he must stand securely on his two legs otherwise he cannot love at all. This, indeed, the girls know only too well. They don't care two pins about unselfish and merely objective men. May I venture to suggest, incidentally, that I know women? This knowledge is part of my Dionysian patrimony. Who knows? Maybe I am the first psychologist of the eternally feminine women all like me. But that's an old story, save, of course, the abortions among them, the emancipated ones, those who lack the wherewithal to have children. Thank goodness I am not willing to let myself be torn to pieces. The perfect woman tears you to pieces when she loves you. I know these amiable maenads. Oh, What a dangerous, creeping, subterranean little beast of prey she is, and so agreeable with all! A little woman, pursuing her vengeance, would force open even the iron gates of fate itself. Woman is incalculably more wicked than man. She is also cleverer. Goodness in a woman is already a sign of degeneration. All cases of beautiful souls in women may be traced to the faulty physiological condition. But I go no further, lest I should become medicinical. The struggle for equal rights is even a symptom of disease. Every doctor knows this. The more womanly a woman is, the more she fights tooth and nail against rights in general the natural order of things. The eternal war between the sexes assigns to her by far the foremost rank. Have people had ears to hear my definition of love? It is the only definition worthy of a philosopher. Love, in this means, is war. In its foundation, it is the mortal hatred of the sexes have you heard my reply to the question how a woman can be cured saved in fact give her a child a woman needs children man is always only a means thus spake zarathustra the emancipation of women this is the instinctive hatred of psychologically botched that is to say barren women for those of their sisters who are well constituted. The fight against man is always only a means, a pretext, a piece of strategy. By trying to rise to woman per se, to higher women, to the ideal woman, all they wish to do is to lower the general level of woman's rank, and there are no more certain means to this end than university education, trousers, and the rights of voting cattle. Truth to tell, the emancipated are the anarchists in the eternally feminine world, these psychological mishaps, the most deep-rooted instinct of whom is revenge, the whole species of the most malicious idealism, which, by the by, also manifests itself in men, In Heinrich Ibsen, for instance, that typical old maid, whose object is to poison the clean conscience, the natural spirit of sexual love. And in order to leave no doubt in your minds in regard to my opinion, which, on this matter, is as honest as it is severe, I will reveal to you one more clause out of my moral code against vice. With the word vice, I combat every kind of opposition to nature or, if you prefer fine words, idealism. The clause reads Preaching of chastity is a public incitement to unnatural practices. All depreciation of the sexual life, all the sullying of it by means of the concept impure, is the essential crime against life is the essential crime against the Holy Spirit of life. 6. In order to give you some idea of myself as a psychologist, let me take this curious piece of psychological analysis out of the book Beyond Good and Evil in which it appears. I forbid, by the by, any guessing as to whom I am describing in this passage the genius of the heart, as that great anchorite possessed it, the divine tempter and born pied piper of consciences, whose voice knows how to sink into the inmost depths of every soul, who neither utters a word nor casts a glance, in which some seductive motive or trick does not lie, a part of whose masterliness is that he understands the art of seeming, not what he is, but that which will place a fresh constraint upon his followers to press ever more closely upon him, to follow him ever more enthusiastically and wholeheartedly. The genius of the heart, which makes all loud and self-conceited things hold their tongues and lend their ears— WHICH POLISHES ALL ROUGH SOULS AND MAKES THEM TASTE A NEW LONGING, TO LIE PLACID AS A MIRROR, THAT THE DEEP HEAVENS MAY BE REFLECTED IN THEM. THE GENIUS OF THE HEART, WHICH TEACHES THE clumsy AND TOO HASTY HAND TO HESITATE AND GRASP MORE TENDERLY, WHICH SENSE THE HIDDEN AND FORGOTTEN TREASURE, the pearl of goodness and sweet spirituality beneath thick black ice and is a divining rod for every grain of gold long buried and imprisoned in heaps of mud and sand the genius of the heart from contact with which every man goes away richer not blessed and overcome not as though favoured and crushed by the good things of others, but richer in himself, fresher to himself than before, opened up, breathed upon, and sounded by a thawing wind. More uncertain, perhaps, more delicate, more fragile, more bruised, but full of hopes which as yet lack names full of a new will and striving, full of a new unwillingness and counter-striving. The Birth of Tragedy 1 In order to be fair to The Birth of Tragedy, 1872, it is necessary to forget a few things. It created a sensation, and even fascinated by means of its mistakes by means of its application to Wagnerism, as if the latter were the sign of an ascending tendency. On that account alone, this treatise was an event in Wagner's life. Thenceforward, great hopes surrounded the name of Wagner. Even to this day, people remind me, sometimes in the middle of Parseval, that it rests on my conscience if the opinion— that this movement is of great value to culture, at length became prevalent. I have often seen the book quoted as the second birth of tragedy from the spirit of music. People had ears only for new formulae for Wagner's art, his object and his mission, and in this way the real hidden value of the book was overlooked. Hellenism and Pessimism, this would have been a less equivocal title, seeing that the book contained the first attempt at showing how the Greeks succeeded in disposing of pessimism, in what manner they overcame it. Tragedy itself is the proof of the fact that the Greeks were not pessimists, Schopenhauer blundered here as he blundered in everything else. Regarded impartially, The Birth of Tragedy is a book quite strange to its age. No one would dream that it was begun in the thunder of the Battle of Verd. I thought out these problems on cold September nights beneath the walls of Metz in the midst of my duties as a nurse to the wounded. It would be easier to think that it was written fifty years earlier. Its attitude towards politics is one of indifference, un-German, as people would say today. Translators note. Those Germans who, like Nietzsche or Goethe, recognize that politics constitute a danger to culture, and who appreciate the literature of maturer cultures, such as that of France, are called undeutsch, un-German by imperialistic Germans. End translator's note. It smells offensively of Hegel. Only in one or two formulae is it infected with a bitter odor of corpses, which is peculiar to Schopenhauer, an idea. The antagonism of the two concepts Dionysian and Apollonian is translated into metaphysics. History itself is depicted as the development of this idea. In tragedy, this antithesis has become unity. From this standpoint, things which theretofore have never been face to face are suddenly confronted and understood and illuminated by each other—opera and revolution, for instance. The two decisive innovations in the book are, first, the comprehension of the Dionysian phenomenon among the Greeks. It provides the first psychological analysis of this phenomenon, and sees in it the single root of all Greek art, and, secondly, the comprehension of Socraticism. Socrates being presented, for the first time, as the instrument of Greek dissolution, as a typical decadent. Reason versus instinct, reason at any cost, as a dangerous, life-undermining force. The whole book is profoundly and politely silent concerning Christianity. The latter is neither Apollonian nor Dionysian. It denies all ascetic value, which are the only values that the birth of tragedy recognises. Christianity is most profoundly nihilistic, whereas in the Dionysian symbol the most extreme limits of a yea saying attitude to life are attained. In one part of the book, the Christian priesthood is referred to as the perfidious order of goblins, As subterraneans. 2. This start of mine was remarkable beyond measure. As confirmation of my inmost personal experience, I had discovered the only example of this fact that history possesses. With this, I was the first to understand the amazing Dionysian phenomenon. At the same time, By recognizing Socrates as a decadent, I proved most conclusively that the certainty of my psychological grasp of things ran very little risk at the hands of any sort of moral idiosyncrasy. To regard morality itself as a symptom of degeneration is an innovation, a unique event of the first order in the history of knowledge how high I had soared above the pitifully foolish gabble about optimism and pessimism with my two new doctrines. I was the first to see the actual contrast, the degenerate instinct which turns upon life with the subterranean lust of vengeance, Christianity, Schopenhauer's philosophy, and in some respects too even Plato's philosophy. In short, the whole of idealism in its typical forms. As opposed to a formula of the highest yea saying to life, born of an abundance and a superabundance of life, a yea saying free from all reserve, applying even to suffering and guilt, and all that is questionable and strange in existence, this last most joyous most exuberant and exultant yea to life is not only the highest but also the profoundest conception and one which is most strictly confirmed and supported by truth and science nothing that exists must be suppressed nothing can be dispensed with those aspects of life which christians and other nihilists reject belong to an incalculably higher order in the hierarchy of values than that which the instinct of degeneration calls good and may call good in order to understand this a certain courage is necessary and as a prequisite of this a certain superfluidity of strength for a man can approach only as near to truth as he has the courage to advance. That is to say, everything depends strictly upon the measure of his strength. Knowledge and the affirmation of reality are just as necessary to the strong man as cowardice. The flight from reality, in fact, the ideal, are necessary to the weak inspired by weakness. These people are not at liberty to know." decadence stand in need of lies. It is one of their self-preservative measures. He who not only understands the word Dionysian, but understands himself in that term, does not require any refutation of Plato, or of Christianity, or of Schopenhauer, for his nose sense, decomposition 3. The extent to which I had, by means of these doctrines, discovered the idea of tragedy, the ultimate explanation of what the psychology of tragedy is, I discussed finally in The Twilight of the Idols, Aphorism 5, Part 10. The Saying of Yea to Life and even to its weirdest and most difficult problems. The will to life rejoicing at its own infinite vitality, in the sacrifice of its highest types, that is what I call Dionysian. That is what I meant as the bridge to the psychology of the tragic poet. Not to cast out terror and pity, or to purge oneself of dangerous passions by discharging it with vehemence this was aristotle's misunderstanding of it translator's note aristotle's poetics chapter 6 and translator's note but to be far beyond terror and pity and to be the eternal lust of becoming itself that lust which also involves the joy of destruction in this sense I have the right to regard myself as the first tragic philosopher, that is to say, the most extreme antithesis and antipods of a pessimistic philosopher. Before my time no such thing existed as this translation of the Dionysian phenomenon into philosophic emotion. Tragic wisdom was lacking, In vain have I sought for signs of it even among the great Greeks in philosophy, those belonging to the two centuries before Socrates. I still remained a little doubtful about Heraclitus, in whose presence alone I felt warmer and more at ease than anywhere else, the yea-saying to the impermanence and annihilation of things, which is the decisive feature of Dionysian philosophy the yea-saying, to contradiction and war, the postulation of becoming, together with a radical rejection even of the concept being, in all these things, at all events, I must recognize him who has come nearest to me in thought hitherto. The doctrine of the eternal recurrence, that is to say, Of the absolute and eternal repetition of all things in periodical cycles, this doctrine of Zarathustra's might, it is true, have been taught before. In any case, the Stoics, who derive nearly all the fundamental ideas from Heraclitus, show traces of it. 4. A tremendous hope finds expression in this work. After all, I have absolutely no reason to renounce the hope for a Dionysian future of music. Let us look a century ahead, and let us suppose that my attempt to destroy two millenniums of hostility to nature, and of the violation of humanity, be crowned with success. That new party of life advocates, which will undertake the greatest of all tasks, the elevation and perfection of mankind, As well as the relentless destruction of all degenerate and parasitical elements, will make that superabundance of life on earth once more possible, out of which the Dionysian state will perforce arise again. I promise the advent of a tragic age, the highest art in the saying of yea to life. Tragedy will be born again when mankind has the knowledge of the hardest, but most necessary of wars behind it, without, however, suffering from that knowledge. A psychologist might add that what I heard in Wagnerian music in my youth and early manhood have nothing whatsoever to do with Wagner, that when I described Dionysian music, I described merely what I personally had heard that I was compelled instinctively to translate and transfigure everything into the new spirit which filled my breast. A proof of this, and as strong a proof as you could have, is my essay, Wagner in Byright. In all its decisive psychological passages, I am the only person concerned. Without any hesitation, you may read my name or the word Zarathustra, wherever the text contains the name of Wagner. The whole panorama of the diathrambic artist is the representation of the already existing author of Zarathustra, and it is drawn with an abysmal depth which does not even once come into contact with the real Wagner. Wagner himself had a notion of this truth. He did not recognize himself in the essay, In this way, the idea of byright was changed into something which to those who are acquainted with my Zarathustra will be no riddle. That is to say, into the great noon, when the highest of the elect will consecrate themselves for the greatest of all duties, who knows, the vision of a feast, which I may live to see. The pathos of the first few pages is universal history. The look, the look which is discussed on page 105 of the book, is the actual look of Zarathustra. Translator's footnote. This number and those which follow refers to the Thoughts Out of Season Part 1 in this edition of Nietzsche's works. and translator's note. Wagner. Bayreuth. The whole of this petty German wretchedness is a cloud upon which an infinite Fata Morgana of the future is reflected. Even from the psychological standpoint, all the decisive traits in my character are introduced into Wagner's nature—the juxtaposition of the most brilliant and most fatal forces. A will to power such as no man has ever possessed. Inexorable bravery in matters spiritual. An unlimited power of learning unaccompanied by depressed powers for action. Everything in this essay is a prophecy. The proximity of the resurrection of the Greek spirit the need of men who will be counter-Alexanders, who will once more tie the Gordian knot of Greek culture after it has been cut. Listen to the world-historic accent with which the concept, Sense for the Tragic, is introduced on page 108. There are little else but world-historic accents in this essay. THIS IS THE STRANGEST KIND OF OBJECTIVITY THAT EVER EXISTED, BY ABSOLUTE CERTAINTY IN REGARD TO WHAT I AM, PROJECTED ITSELF INTO ANY CHANCE REALITY. TRUTH ABOUT MYSELF WAS VOICED FROM OUT APPALLING DEPTHS. ON PAGES 174 AND 175 THE STYLE OF ZARATHUSTRA IS DESCRIBED AND foretold WITH INCISIVE CERTAINTY and no more magnificent expression will ever be found than that on pages 144-147, to for the event for which Zarathustra stands, that prodigious act of the purification and consecration of mankind. Thoughts Out of Season 1 The four essays composing the Thoughts Out of Season A thoroughly warlike in tone, they prove that I was no mere dreamer, that I delight in drawing the sword, and perhaps also that my wrist is dangerously supple. The first onslaught, 1873, was directed against German culture, upon which I looked down even at that time with unmitigated contempt without either sense, substance, or goal, it was simply public opinion. There could be no more dangerous misunderstanding than to suppose that Germany's success at arms proved anything in favour of German culture, and still less the triumph of this culture over that of France. The second essay 1874, brings to light that which is dangerous, that which corrodes and poisons life in our manner of pursuing scientific study. Life is diseased thanks to this dehumanized piece of clockwork and mechanism, thanks to the impersonality of the workman, and the false economy of the division of labor. The object, which is culture, is lost sight of. Modern scientific activity as a means thereto simply produces barbarism. In this treatise, the historical sense of which this century is so proud is for the first time recognised as sickness, as a typical symptom of decay. In the third and fourth essays, a signpost is set up pointing to a higher concept of culture to a re-establishment of the notion culture, and two pictures of the hardest self-love and self-discipline are presented, two essentially unmodern types, full of the most sovereign contempt for all that which lay around them and was called empire, culture, Christianity, Bismarck, and success. These two types were Schopenhauer and Wagner, or, in a word, Nietzsche. 2. Of these four attacks, the first met with extraordinary success. The stir which it created was in every way gorgeous. I had put my finger on the vulnerable spot of a triumphant nation. I have told it that its victory was not a red-letter day for culture, but perhaps something very different. The reply rang out from all sides, and certainly not from old friends of David Strauss, whom I had made ridiculous, as the type of the German Philistine of culture, and a man of smug self-content, in short, as the author of that subterranean gospel of his called The Old and the New Faith, The term Philistine of Culture passed into the current language of Germany after the appearance of my book. These old friends, whose vanity as Württembergians and Swabians I had deeply wounded in regarding their unique animal, their bird of paradise, as a trifle comic, replied to me as ingenuously and as grossly as I could have wished— The Prussian replies were smarter. They contained more Prussian blue. The most disreputable attitude was assumed by a Leipzig paper, the Egregarious Gretzboden, and it cost me some pains to prevent my indignant friends at Bala from taking action against it. Only a few gentlemen decided in my favour, and for very diverse and sometimes unaccountable reasons. Among them was one Eduard of Göttingen, who made it clear that my attacks on Strauss had been deadly. There was also the Hegelian Bruno Bauer, who from that time became one of my most attentive readers. In his later years he liked to refer to me when, for instance, he wanted to give Herr von Traiske, the Prussian historiographer, a hint as to where he could obtain information about the notion-culture, of which he, Herr von T., had completely lost sight. The weightiest and longest notice of my book and its author appeared in Würzburg and was written by Professor Hoffmann, an old pupil of the philosopher von Baader. The essays made him foresee a great future for me, namely, that of bringing about a sort of crisis and decisive turning-point in the problem of atheism, of which he recognized in me the most instinctive and most radical advocate. It was atheism that had drawn me to Schopenhauer. The review which received by far the most attention, and which excited the most bitterness, was an extraordinarily powerful and plucky appreciation of my work by Karl Hillebrand a man who was usually so mild, and the last humane German who knew how to wield a pen. The article appeared in the Augsburg Gazette, and can be read today, couched in rather more cautious language, among his collective essays. In it my work is referred to as an event, as a decisive turning point, as the first sign of an awakening, as an excellent symptom as an actual revival of German earnestness and of German passion in things spiritual. Hillebrand could speak only in the terms of the highest respect, of the form of my book, of its consummate taste, of its perfect tact in discriminating between persons and causes. He characterized it as the best polemical work in the German language. The best performance in the art of polemics, for which Germans is so dangerous and so strongly to be depreciated. Besides confirming my standpoint, he laid even greater stress upon what I had dared to say about the deterioration of language in Germany. Nowadays writers assume the airs of purists, and can no longer even construct a sentence. Translator's footnote the purists constitute a definite body in germany which is called the deutsche sprachtweren their object is to banish every foreign word from the language and they carry this process of ostracism even into the domain of the menu where their efforts at rendering the meaning of french dishes are extremely comical strange to say their principal organ, and their other publications, are by no means free either from solecisms or faults of style, and it is doubtless to this curious anomaly that Nietzsche here refers. Translator's footnote. Sharing my contempt for the literary stars of this nation, he concluded by expressing his admiration for my courage, that, Greatest courage of all which places the very favourites of the people in the dock. The after effects of this essay of mine proved invaluable to me in my life. No one has ever tried to meddle with me since. People are silent. In Germany, I am treated with gloomy caution. For years, I have rejoiced in the privilege of such absolute freedom of speech as no one nowadays least of all in the empire, has enough liberty to claim. My paradise is in the shadow of my sword. At bottom all I had done was to put one of Senhal's maxims into practice. He advises one to make one's entrance into society by means of a duel, And how well I had chosen my opponent, the foremost freethinker of Germany. As a matter of fact, quite a novel kind of free thought found its expression in this way up to the present nothing has been more strange and more foreign to my blood than the whole of that european and american species known as libre penseur incorrigible blockheads and clowns of modern ideas that they are i feel much more profoundly at variance with them than with any one of their adversaries They also wish to improve mankind after their own fashion. That is to say, in their own image. Against that which I stand for and desire, they would wage an implacable war. If only they understood it. The whole gang of them still believe in an ideal. I am the first immoralist. 3. I should not like to say that the last two essays in the Thoughts Out of Season, associated with the names of Schopenhauer and Wagner, respectively, serve any special purpose in throwing light upon these two cases, or in formulating their psychological problems. This, of course, does not apply to a few details. Thus, for instance, in the second of the two essays, with a profound certainty of instinct, I already characterized the elementary factor in Wagner's nature as a theatrical talent, which in all his means and inspirations only draws its final conclusions. At bottom, my desire in this essay was to do something very different from writing psychology. An unprecedented educational problem, a new understanding of self-discipline and self-defence carried to the point of hardness, a road to greatness, and to world-historic duties yearn to find expression. Roughly speaking, I seized two famous, and theretofore, completely undefined types by the forelock, after the manner in which one seizes opportunities, simply in order to speak my mind on certain questions, in order to have a few more formulas, signs and means of expression at my disposal. Indeed, I actually suggest this, with the most unearthly sagacity, on page 183 of Schopenhauer as Educator. Plato made use of Socrates in the same way. That is to say, as a cipher for Plato. Now that, from some distance, I can look back upon the conditions of which these essays are the testimony, I would be loath to deny that they refer simply to me. The essay, Wagner in bayreuth is a vision of my own future. On the other hand, my most secret history, My development is written down in Schopenhauer as educator. But, above all, the vow I made. What I am today, the place I now hold, at a height from which I speak no longer with words, but with thunderbolts. Oh, how far I was from all this in those days! But I saw the land. I did not deceive myself one moment as to the way the sea, the danger, and success. The great calm in promising. This happy prospect of a future which must not remain only a promise. In this book every word has been lived profoundly and intimately. The most painful things are not lacking in it. It contains words which are positively running with blood. But a wind of great freedom blows over the whole, even its wounds do not constitute an objection. As to what I understand by being a philosopher, that is to say, the terrible explosive in the presence of which everything is in danger, as to how I sever my idea of the philosopher by Miles from that other idea of him, which includes even a Kant not to speak of the academic ruminators and other professors of philosophy. Concerning all these things, this essay provides invaluable information, even granting that, at bottom, it is not Schopenhauer as educator, but Nietzsche as educator, who speaks his sentiments in it. Considering that, in those days, my trade was that of a scholar, and perhaps also that I understood my trade. The piece of austere scholar psychology, which suddenly makes its appearance in this essay, is not without importance. It expresses the feeling of distance, and my profound certainty regarding what was my real-life task. And what was merely means, intervals, and accessory work to me. My wisdom consists in my having been many things, and in many places, in order to become one thing, in order to be able to attain to one thing. It was part of my fate to be a scholar for a while. End of Why I Write Such Excellent Books, Part 1